If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Since you're listening to this podcast, we have a very special offer for you. You can try six issues of BBC History Revealed magazine for just $9.99. That's a saving of 70% on the shop price. BBC History Revealed is the all-action history magazine suitable for the whole family. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. And if you're based in the US, you won't miss out. You can try three issues for just $9.95, saving a huge 70%. For more details, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. Both these offers end on the 15th of May, 2021. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 70 years ago, Britain was preparing to throw a party. The Festival of Britain, staged in the summer of 1951, was intended as a celebration of an exceptional nation rising from the ruins of war and looking towards a bright future. And it certainly was a big hit with the public. That summer, millions of Britons descended on London's South Bank and exhibitions across the four nations to take in an event that dominated Britain's cultural landscape for four months. 
Harry Atkinson recently wrote a feature about the festival for BBC History magazine. And here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, she talks us through some of the festival highlights and argues that though it was designed as a great celebration of Britishness, this was an event with a surprisingly international flavour. Harriet, your feature in our May issue tells the story of the Festival of Britain, a four-month celebration of Britishness that was staged across the UK in 1951, which is uh, 70 years ago this summer. Um, Now, you write near the beginning of the piece that uh, Clement Clement Attlee's Labour government saw the festival as a a means of promoting Britain as a model democracy. It's a time of deteriorating relations between the communist East and the capitalist West. I just wonder if you could explore that point in a little more detail. What was the government aiming to achieve by putting on the festival? Well, the the initial occasion, um, the initial peg for the festival had actually been the centenary of 1851, the Great Exhibition, which had happened at Crystal Palace. Um, but actually, as soon as the government, Clement Attlee's government, got into the planning process, that that peg was sort of soon forgotten, really, although it was occasionally referenced here and there. Um I mean, the, the, the sort of simple um, reason for staging it was to give people a lift and, and to give people a, a tonic to the nation, as they call it, after the privations of war. But there were various political arguments that were also mounted. Um, one of them was this point of, of um, showing Britain as this model democracy in as the, as the sort of storm clouds of the Cold War gathered. Um, and um, so Britain could be put on um, on a stage and shown to be um, to, to 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 be able to 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 operate um, in a way that um, was was distinctive and different. The, the the sort of economic argument for for the festival was that it was um, going to be a, a trade and cultural exhibition. Um, it was supported by the Board of Trade. Um, the President, Stafford Cliffs, uh, Cripps, sorry, had, had made an argument um, for it. Um, so it was a, to boost trade. And there was this idea of, of the festival being um, a chance to show British reconstruction in action. So action um, around, um, you know, building new housing and, and, and putting on show, putting on exhibition, the sorts of things that were happening in order to bring Britain back after the war. So there were a complex set of, 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 of um, considerations going on there. And, um, and some of them were based on this idea of presenting British democracy to the world. Now, you say that um, the festival was, to some extent, intended as a, a shot in the arm to a nation still coming to terms and suffering from the economic consequences of six years of conflict. But was the festival aimed principally at the people of Britain or was it more aimed to the watching world? Bo- both, really, both. Um, and um, so... It was a story, um, as they called it. It was a story about the British contribution to civilization, as as its organisers uh, saw it. It was about the British people and, and the land they lived in and lived by, as uh, in the words of of, of its organisers. This was a story really for the people of Britain to reflect on. So um, that people also, the organisers were also calling it a, a, an autobiography. So it was almost as if it was reflecting back to the British people their own, their own history and their own experiences. 
But then there was, of course, an earnest attempt to bring people from overseas. And there was a big marketing campaign, for example, with London buses that were all um, made into little exhibitions of their own in advance of the festival to take it around to Europe and, and also to the States in order to sell the idea and to bring people over. So so both really. But I guess the main audience was British people. Cool. So so we've talked about the aims of the festival. Now can we turn to sort of the content of the festival? I wonder, I wonder if you could talk talk us through what you consider to be some of the highlights of the Festival of Britain. Yes. I mean the first thing that I would say about that is that people often think about the festival as being just about the South Bank, it's about the Festival Hall um, on the South Bank of the Thames and about those very notable symbols, the the, the skyline which shot in the air and the, this enormous dome of discovery which, built, which was built there, which were the sort of spectacular centrepieces of the festival. But the thing I've always thought was very interesting and I think is not so well known is the fact that the Festival of Britain was about showing the whole of Britain, and it did take place across the whole country. So in addition to the South Bank exhibition, there were seven other major exhibitions that were mounted at the same time. Three of them were in London. One was in Lansbury, uh, in the East End of London. It was about live architecture. It was about showing an area under reconstruction being built. There was a big exhibition of science and innovation in science at the South Kensington, the Science Museum, as it is now. There was there were the pleasure gardens, which are often remembered at Battersea Park. And then there was a uh, major exhibition at Belfast, a farm and factory in a suburb of, of, of Belfast at Castle Ray. There was a very large exhibition as well in Glasgow, and that was an exhibition of power. So it was showing modern technologies of hydroelectricity, for example. Um, and then there were two others that were... Sh- taken round the country as travelling exhibitions for people who couldn't get to the major others. So one was aboard a decommissioned aircraft carrier, the HMS Campania, and that was like a miniature replica of what was happening at the South Bank. Uh, And that went to all sorts of ports around the edge, around the coast of, of, of Britain. And, and then there was a final one which went round on lorries and was constructed in various places. So, uh, and then in addition to these, um, these, major exhibitions. There were a whole lot of arts festivals that happened all over the place and a lot of local organising went on. And so town and village councils would um, think of ways of brightening up villages. So they created bench schemes and new signage and parties and dressing up and um, little competitions and, you know, sort of other ways of, of, of celebrating the festival. So bell ringing and bonfires were were burnt and and all sorts of other th- other creative ways of, of marking this moment including you know magazines creating stitching um, embroidery sets that were were bought and so actually there was a sort of proliferation of, of of things that went on some of them probably would have happened in the summer of 1951 anyway but became overbranded as festival uh, events or, or um, sort of manifestations of the festival so did the people of Britain really buy into the festival we, we... Would you deem it a success in in terms of how how it was received by the public? Well, I think broadly, yes, it was in that 8 million people went to the South Bank exhibition and 13 million people, um, more or less, uh, went to um, the, the exhibitions around the country and to the arts festivals and so on. So, I mean, many, many people went to uh, some part of the Festival of Britain. But there was, of course 
resistance as well for all kinds of reasons i mean the, one of them one of the, the the major reasons why there was resistance was because of course this was a moment when britain was um massively in debt when we were still recovering from the war when um rationing was still continuing and there were lots of material shortages so so broadly um people on the on the critics on the left um were worried that um resources um manpower would be diverted away from the important work of of reconstruction and building houses and 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 so on and then there were others on the right who criticized it um because um it was a a waste of money and um uh, I, I, there was a, an mp um a conservative mp called waldron Smithers, um, who uh, criticised this squandermania that that he saw the Attlee government um, being sort of fi- finding itself just spending money on all sorts of things. He, he in his eyes, there were also people who 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 thought of it as being a sort of vanity project for the Attlee government and and a form of propaganda. So that was the sort of political response was was divided. There were there were lots of people who had sort of cultural objections to it, who thought that it was. Just unnecessary. Um, the novelist Evelyn War wrote about these monstrous constructions appearing on the south bank of the Thames, for example. The conductor Thomas Beecham saw the Royal Festival Hall for the first time, and, and again called it ugly and monstrous. There were other um, critics who thought that the architecture was very parochial, that this was a sort of outburst of xenophobia. So um, architectural critic Raina Bannum, for example, wrote a piece saying that this was this 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 was a, a manifestation of, of xenophobia. People who visited on the whole enjoyed it and and had positive things to say, positive memories. People were amazed by how expensive the food was, for example. And um, and um, so one critic wrote about how rubbish the food was in these open air cafes and um, that it was more expensive than going to the Ritz. There were a range of, um, of, of, of responses. Overwhelmingly, I would say people were positive, but there were quite a lot of Reasonable objections, I think. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's become a political symbol for um, for a cultural event that ha- that managed to to bring people together, and I think in a way that's one of its legacies is that it it's it it's become this political symbol, a symbol of of something that was offered in that moment, which which worked, a, a political. A political project which, which actually met the mark. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. 
Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. In like the fact that um, the festival was imbued with patriotism. It was a celebration of Britishness. I mean, one of the most interesting angles in your feature is is the fact that architects and designers born outside of Britain, many of whom were refugees from Nazis, they made an enormous contribution to the festival, didn't they? Which is probably unseen by most of the visitors. So that leads me to two questions, really. What, why was the contribution of foreign-born creatives so significant to the festival? And following, following on from that, could you introduce us to some of those foreign-born designers? Absolutely. I mean, it is a really intriguing aspect of the festival and actually is, is something that I've only started to think about more recently Um uh, this 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 issue of of where people had come from in order to t- to take part it's something that the historian david cesarani uh, writes about this this makes this point about the fact that the festival of britain was one of a series of key moments in the 20th century when um immigrants and refugees developed and defined english culture and heritage and and i found that a really intriguing intriguing idea and it's something that i've only sort of followed up in the last two or three years but i i'm i'm very struck by by this point that actually there were many many um creatives who worked on the festival of britain there were 40 architectural practices just at the south bank alone there were 99 designers working on the festival at the south bank and then many many beyond but many of them were not born in Britain. Many of them had come from um, kind of a, a dispersed series of locations. So there were there were designers who were born in in Russia and Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Germany, Austria, who all came and worked on these events. A number of them had been interned during World War II as enemy aliens. Some of them, for example, the artist Hans Feibusch, had his, his work had been shown in the notorious 1937 uh, Degenerate Art Exhibition in Munich, um, the Nazi the Nazi um, exhibition. So they all they all um, arrived um, in in well 
many of them arrived during the 1930s and then um, were just beginning to set up fledgling practices at the time of the of the Festival of Britain. So just to to, to think about three of th- three of those designers I'll just I'll, I'll just talk about three that particularly interest me and there are many many as I've said there are there are dozens of of people who who were not born in 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 Britain who were contributing in that moment the three that I'm most interested in are are Misha Black uh, Jacqueline Grog and uh FHK Henryan so Misha Black was born in Russia, in, in in the city of Baku, which is now part of Azerbaijan. He'd arrived in Britain in 1912. He, um, his family had been part of, of an earlier wave of migration to, to, to Europe, um, es- escaping Jewish persecution in the Russian, uh, from the Russian empire. Um, at 38, he was appointed to this major role on the Festival of Britain. He uh, was part of the major design team overseeing all of the events. He also oversaw major parts of the South Bank exhibition and lots of the displays, for example, inside the Dome of Discovery and, and the Regatta restaurant and, and various other aspects. He was a really formidable designer. Um, he worked for many extraordinarily well-known clients during his, his life. He went on to design, for example, the much-admired Westminster City street signs, the the red and the black. He also um, worked very closely with London Underground and British Rail, designing the look of those uh, services. So he he was um, very interesting and very pivotal to the Festival of Britain. Jacqueline Groeg had been born in Prague um, in the former Czechoslovakia. She had worked in Germany and Austria in Prague, um, and then came to Britain in 1939 on the eve of of the First World War, of the Second World War. Sorry, she worked with Misha Black on elements of the Dome of Discovery. Um, she was a very interesting textile designer, and she designed um, a screen in the Dome of Discovery um, for the Living World section, which was all of sort of simulated bones. It was very, very, um, it was a really interesting uh, piece of, of design. And and the third um, designer who whose work was important in the festival and who, who is interesting was FHK Henry. And he was a graphic designer. He was German. He'd lived and worked in Paris and Tel Aviv before he came to uh, London in 1936. He worked in the festival on the country and the natural world displays. He um, he had been interned on the Isle of Man in um, during 1940 and then went to the Ministry of Information and he ended up having a practice that was really extraordinarily influential in all sorts of the kind of corporate branding that we now identify things like Tate and Lyle sugar he designed the 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 brand for that and and many other corporate identities that we will all now be familiar with british based uh, 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 people will be familiar with so those are three of them but there are as i say many many others who are who are very interesting did the, the the presence and the influence of so many foreign-born creatives, I mean, did that provoke any resistance? Mainly, designers felt welcomed. That's the the overriding impression that I have from the interviews that I did and the and the archival research I've done is that these designers felt welcome and that it was a really important staging post in careers. But there were subtle signs of resistance and discrimination, I suppose. 
I interviewed uh, Charles Pluvier, who was an administrator in the festival office, and he recalled having uh, found a memo where his name was underlined and someone had written, I thought this was supposed to be the Festival of Britain, because because clearly the, the implication being that his name didn't sound British. There were also suggestions, interestingly, um, Misha Black was awarded an OBE after the festival. At the same time, some of his colleagues and contemporaries were awarded knighthoods. And there was some suggestion in um, in the archive, in his archive, which I've looked at, which is at the V&A, that some of his colleagues and, and contemporaries definitely thought that there was discrimination in that choice, that he had only been honoured with an OBE when some of his contemporaries had been given something more. Um, Misha Black had, in fact, only become naturalised as a British citizen on the eve of the Festival of Britain in 1950. He'd tried before that. I would say it was 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 subtle if discrimination existed rather than there being an overt feeling. How did the diversity of the designers shape the festival itself? I mean, can a, a continental influence be detected in, in the work and the designs and the exhibitions uh, in Britain that summer? Yes, I think the answer is yes. Um, although, of course, the the impact of that influence was was dispersed because it wasn't through any one medium. The architects, the designers, the, the craftspeople, the, the, the artists were all working across different media. Um, and they'd all been, of course, everyone had, had, had come from different locations, from different kinds of technical and, and um, creative training. So, so I think one can see it, but I, I, it's not it's not particularly easy to sort of quantify what that was. But certainly, um, it's if you look for um, influences of say the new typography, which was within within the kinds of choices of of of, of typeface, for example, and um, choices of of um, fabrics and materials and um, forms, there are definitely traces of of all sorts of influence from from surrealism to constructivism to several of the kind of European avant-garde uh, movements that were all coming together in 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 that moment and how unique on a on an international scale was the festival of Britain were there any sort of other comparable grand national events being staged in other nations at this time? One of the things that was unique about the festival was this strange idea of sort of inverting the World's Fair model. So instead of it all being, as the Crystal Palace had been, for example, all staged in on one site in that moment, um, the 1851 kind of Hyde Park, you know, you all came, you saw the world in a single place. What the festival did was to assemble a whole nation on show across the whole nation. So it was almost like an inversion of that. And I, I don't think that anything had quite been done in that way before. There were other 
events that in just pr- prior to the, the festival that were very influential on it. For example, there was a, a major exhibition at Stockholm in, in 1930, which was very focused on the land and landscape as the festival was. There was a major, and that was, uh, there was also a major exhibition in Zurich a few years before the festival, the Landy, um, as it was colloquially known. And that was again focused on land and landscape. And, and there were all sorts of ideas of landscaping that were brought to the South Bank from 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 that exhibition there was also a, a big exhibition um called in Ro- in Rotluff in Poland that had all sorts of similar visual cues and 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 um and and landscaping tropes um, um so th- the designers of the, of the festival of britain traveled around looking at um shows and um and gathering influences and um so we, quite a lot of those can be seen in the festival um, of britain if you could go back and visit um just one of the installations or exhibitions that were put on 70 summers ago which one would you choose one of the very odd things and the the, the very sort of unknown i think aspects of the south bank was how much attention they paid to making the landscaping rather like a visit to the countryside. One of the things that's very strange in photographs is the way that dry stone walls and um, geological features are brought to the South Bank site and reconstructed so that you'd have a feeling almost as if you were on a day out in the countryside, but in the middle of London. And that has always really intrigued me. And partly that intrigues me because it would be interesting to see what it would be like to see those features by the Thames there in the middle of London. But also it intrigues me because clearly these architects and designers who were so interested in giving a glimpse of the future were also deeply invested in the British landscape and in British countryside. The landscaping of the Festival of, of, of Britain site at the South Bank, attached as it was to the to the geology and, and the natural features, which were all brought for those months and, and put in situ with, with Yorkshire dry stone walls next to Derbyshire stone and all set up in this way. The poet W.H. Auden um, described this idea of of British people who were attached to not only the British landscape but the history of that landscape as topophiles. And I think what's very interesting is is to me at least is is the way in which modern and modernist designers who were working on the Festival of Britain also had this topophile tendency. They were deeply invested in in the picturesque and in deep sort of love of 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 the land and 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 thinking about the land and and about the sort of um the sort of spiritual qualities almost of of the land of britain finally harriet how how do you think the festival of britain changed britain well i think it succeeded in giving people a lift uh, um in its very in its most immediate form so there are many accounts of, of people reminiscing about how it, it it was the the boost that they needed. It gave them, you know, a, a sensory kind of 
you know, experience of, of, of bright colors and an enjoyment and a day out and, um, their first taste of, of refrigerated milk and, um, the, the first chance to dress up after the war. So in that sort of simple, um, immediate way, I think it, it, it succeeded in giving people a lift. How did it change Britain in the longer term? There were stylistic legacies, certainly. There, there, the idea of a festival style, um, you know, which people still talk about um, with, with particular fonts and furniture and, and mass-produced homewares. There was a craze for uh, atomic styling, which was based on festival patterning, um, this X-ray crystallography, which had been on show in the festival the festival became a bit like a, a, a pattern book for urban planning. So lots of um, the development of the new towns um, drew on aspects that had been experimented with in festival exhibitions, perhaps at, at Lansbury or, or, or at the South Bank or beyond. The festival legitimised the role of the designer. That's one of the things that it did. And so so it put on show the, the things that designers could do and it launched many careers as well. So many architects and designers owed their their collaborations to that moment. And, and so actually that's obviously played out over many decades, the, uh, that, that particular impact. But also the festival, to come back to this point about the, the, the politics of mounting these events, it, it became it's become a political symbol for um, for a cultural event that ha- that managed to to bring people together, and I think in a way that's one of its legacies is that it it's it it's become this political symbol, a symbol of of something that was offered in that moment which which worked, a, a political a political project which which actually met the mark. That was Harriet Atkinson. You can read her feature on the Festival of Britain in our May issue. That's on sale now and also includes pieces on the Peasants' Revolt, Napoleon and the History of Slimming Clubs. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on the Vikings in Britain. 